Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Rob Assis. Coach Assis has been a high school math teacher and high jumps coach for the past 18 years. I first got interested in bringing him onto the podcast when I saw him tweet a video of his athletes dunking saying, this is a top three high jumpers workout. And it seemed to fit right down my path of finding ways to create environments that engage athletes. Today, we talked about how to jump higher, how he goes about implementing variation in a sport such as track and field that is very specific, and why we should max velocity sprints our athletes. I really enjoyed this podcast and coaches overall approach to solving sports performance problems and how he takes his mathematical background and how he approaches solving problems with the information that is present. The stimulus is just a stimulus. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF Nutrition and Lifestyle Guidelines That includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for supporting this podcast. Thank you guys for all the wonderful feedback you guys have been giving me. Really keeps everything rolling. Marcus, hit the intro music. Let's go. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. I will coach. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Do you want to tell the listeners kind of a little bit about yourself, uh, the current situation you're in, what you're kind of doing right now? And the approach to how you got there? Sure. So I'm in my 18th year teaching and coaching. Uh, I'm at Homewood Flossmoor High School, which is in the south suburbs of Chicago. I've been here. It's the only job I've had. Uh, so it's I, I teach high school math. I coach. I've coached track all 18 years, 12 with the girls, nine of which where I was a head coach. And then now I'm an assistant on our guy's staff. This is my sixth year. We're actually kind of just getting our season rolling well, which has been awesome. And then I've also coached football uh, my first five years and then boys and girls cross country for six. So, you know, a lot, a lot of different experiences there within coaching, some awesome experiences uh, teaching high school math, you know, every day is different. That's one thing that I love about it. Uh, prior to the work environment, I attended a small uh, division uh, three school school, uh, Millican University in central Illinois. I played football for a year and some change there. Uh, ended up doing track all four years. And then growing up, I was just, uh, you know, whatever sport was in season, we were playing that. And so a lot of different experiences athletically. Uh, my primaries were probably baseball, basketball, football. Uh, but then once I got to high school, I wanted to dial into I, I did those in my early part of the high school career, but then towards the latter end, I wanted to uh, focus in on football. Uh, and coach said that I should be out on the track running hundreds fast. So I started doing track and kind of crazy, you know, the, the, with that just, you know, simple statement that kind of really transformed my life because I couldn't imagine, you know, where I'm right now with, without coaching track. So pretty wild. Uh, yeah. And I'm interested in um, kind of what was your first love? So you talked about your athletic background, but you're a math teacher. Did you go into becoming a math teacher so you could coach at the high school level? Because I know in the Midwest, it's kind of you have to teach to also coach the high school level. Or did you go into it because you knew you wanted to be a math teacher and coaching was a plus? Like, what was the first love or were they you knew it was going to be combined there? Well, athletics have always been been huge uh, for me. So I, I knew I definitely wanted to have that as part of what I would do moving forward. 
Uh, so in, and I always liked math, so it just kind of seemed like a, a pretty good fit. Uh, so, you know, right. Say probably from mid high school on, I, I knew I want, I was probably going to go into that teaching coaching realm. And I was just a matter of trying to figure out, you know, what content I would teach. And then, you know, uh, not really having an idea of what, what sports I would coach. Uh, and, and I didn't even, I didn't even really know, uh, heading into, I obviously I wanted to do football and track. And fortunately there were opportunities right away, but I honestly, I would have coached anything. Is there something that made you fall in love with the high school level of coaching? You know, like you have, I feel like you have two different level kinds of coaches, like the guys that's like doing everything to become the major, like division one coach. And then you have the, the, the high school level coach that is like, wants to work with the, the foundation of an athlete. Was there something that really, really drew you to the high school level of coaching? Uh, I, I would say probably not that like, I didn't really want to, in terms of teaching, I, I guess I, I viewed it more from like what I was going to be doing professionally. So uh, I knew teaching wise, I didn't want uh, to deal with middle school. Um, and then uh, I, I probably wasn't looking uh, to, to get into it. Uh, I like, I think I liked upper level math a little bit too much to want to be on the elementary side of things. So that was really probably just from the professional standpoint, you know, where I wanted to be uh, as a high school teacher. And then, yeah, I also had such great high school athletic experiences that, you know, being part of those, like I get to be part of that every year. That's uh, that's pretty special. I mean, every, every team is sacred and has its own unique challenges and triumphs. And uh, so from that standpoint, just being able to be part of that was certainly a perk. Uh, and honestly, that like the cop, like moving on to like the college level and things like that really uh, never appealed me to me. And one of the big reasons is like, I do have some friends that are in, in like the recruiting game is just like never ending. So I, I didn't want to like have to deal with that. Like I, I would just rather focus on recruiting the kids out to that are within our hallways, you know, to come out for track as opposed to just reaching out to, you know, as many people as possible uh, to, to kind of feel the program. Yeah. I love that. I'm interested. So I talked to you, I asked you before we even started recording the, the connection between coaching and teaching. Now I'm interested in the connection between math and coaching. Has there, is there any like big advantage that you found that obviously you're good at math if you have, if you're teaching it, where you are grabbing things from the mathematic realm, maybe it's not specific things, but maybe it's theories or just approaches of looking at the world through that mathematical lens that you've applied to the coaching world or the sports performance world, I should say. Yeah, I, yeah. So in general with math, like you're, you're given information and you have to sift your way through and try to figure out how to get to a desired objective. And, and that's, that's what you're dealt with as a coach day in, day out. So it's just that, that process of solving problems it is incredible. And I, you know, I enjoy looking at a math, math situation that I haven't seen before and just trying to reason my way through it, challenging my brain. And I think that's, that's what teaching and coaching be on a day-to-day -day basis. And you're making tons of different decisions uh, every day. Uh, some of them right, some of them wrong, uh, but you, that, that mindset of it's okay to fail and then, you know, kind of go back to the drawing board and try again, I think is, is, has been helpful going from the math side of things to dealing with athletes. Um, and then uh, I think another advantage of it is like, I, you know, I can read through uh, some research and have a, a pretty solid understanding of what they're talking about at times and presenting, uh, although some of it's definitely way beyond uh, what I'm, what I'm capable of, but I think that is that it is kind of helpful uh, just to be able to look at data and what people are doing with it and uh, having you know some some knowledge of of the math or the statistics that they might be using. Yeah, and you said that you're you're looking for like you're looking at something and it's a problem that you have to be able to solve with the information that you're presented with. And you're you're a track coach. You're, you're working to one of the big things I see you post about a lot, and one of the things that got me sparked like getting you on this podcast is jumping higher. Uh, so I went through the whole journey of dunking myself, trying to get myself to dunk. So after I graduated college, I couldn't touch net. Like I was so honest. I was a defensive lineman at division three level. And I finally was able to dunk and went through the whole journey. So I've been geeking out about the whole approach to jumping higher and going down that rabbit hole. What are you looking for generally when you're trying to get somebody to jump higher, the information that's presented and the problem that you want to solve? What are you looking for when you're trying to get people to jump higher? I, I think it's a, a question there that can be kind of go a lot of different directions. So for me, it's kind of unique in that every jumping event that we deal with is off of one leg. You know, so that's probably a lot different than what you're going to see in uh, traditional field court sports. So, you know, we'll have kids that when we do like our baseline testing, um, you know, and one of them is just a vertical jump. 
you know, they can kind of jump out of the gym off of two legs, but then you look at them off one leg and, and it's not, it's not there. Um, I'm the opposite of that. I'm very good at jumping off one leg, but if you looked at my vertical, like they don't match, like it's not even close. So, um, from, from our standpoint, like in a, in a single leg perspective, uh, that's something that honestly, I'm still working on, like trying to develop the, the best test for, uh, but like a pretty, pretty easy one is just, here's the backboard, like go, go up and, and try to touch as high as you can on the backboard off your left leg. And I'll do it off your right leg. But in terms of just the, the actual training of it, I think becoming a better sprinter is certainly helpful from the single leg perspective, uh, performing various, uh, plyometric type activity, certainly helpful. And, you know, things that we can do to improve strength, rate of force development, all, all those things uh, certainly come into play. And I think that would be whether I was looking at it from a single leg perspective or a, a double leg perspective. Uh, and then obviously there's going to be some components as well. So you can get a little bit into the weeds there with like uh, a double leg jump and the different types of a double leg jump, uh, kind of heading into things you can, you know, basketball game, there's, there's a lot of different ways in which the contacts will happen. Uh, before, before an athlete will leave the ground. Uh, the single leg perspective for us is pretty consistent uh, every time. So um, I think in that, from that standpoint, one other thing that I would look at is like in the track and field component, very specific. So in my training, I wanna make sure that I provide some variation. Whereas if I was a basketball coach and they're gonna get a variety of different types of jumps within the course of the game, I'm gonna maybe in my training, give them what they're not getting. So I'm going to narrow down that focus a little bit more and have them rev up the, the intensity a little bit, bit more because they might not be jumping maximally throughout the course of a game. I love that. You talked about more variation because track and field is so specific. What are, what is mm -hmm. your variation? Like, what does that look like for you? Is it just different variations of jumps or are you introducing some sort of lateral motion? Is it like you, we, you talked about in the tweet, is it the dunking just because you approach it in a different way? Like how, how are you spicing up as you would say your, your jump training approach just so they're getting more of that variation and building that base. Yeah. So in, I, I think a lot of what we do stems from our, we call our warm up, we call it speed, speed development. So within, we are going to be sure on a basically daily basis that we're going to cover items in the sagittal plane, the frontal plane, transverse plane. So there's going to be a, a type of jump or movement in those three planes. And then we'll also do something diagonally. So, I mean, you can, I, you can do it like well, eight two vectors, right? Yeah. The eight vectors. Yeah, for sure. And then also like on that eight vector, I would add like a little circle with an arrow, you know, to emphasize the, the transverse plane as well. So within our speed development, like I know that, you know, we sat down and spent hours uh, developing that thing. So I, I know that that stuff's kind of getting taken care of, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, but then even within our training, if what I've found with like, a, if we're like, uh, maybe doing like a max output day for bounds, on the front end of that, I will tend to have them do some relatively intense stuff, maybe uh, where they're following a serpentine path or something like that, whether that's a sprint, whether that's jumping. I just find I find that that kind of wakes up the nervous system a little bit better. And then when they have to go linear, they just they, they produce better outfits, uh, outputs. I don't have like all this data that's that says that, but that's what I've, I've observed, you know, back when I was, you know, in earlier my earlier career. If we were going to do like a linear test day, everything in our warm up would be mostly linear because that's what the test is going to be. But I think having that kind of broader approach actually puts people in a better situation uh, for testing. Yeah. And that's that's where I kind of was interested in diving into this with you, because my field sport athletes that I mostly work with, obviously, I need I want to give them variations so they have tools because they have multiple options. Like You're trying to make a guy miss. You have 12 different options to make that guy miss go right, go left, go over him, go through him, all these options. So you want to have them options for all these. When you're approaching, let's say a high jump pit, like you said, it's probably pretty specific. Like you want to get over the bar and there's a pretty specific way you want to get over the bar. And that's where I'm interested. How have you seen that transfer to the high jump pit in a sense of is, are they now more consistent because they, they know they can jump in different ways. I, I've heard track coaches bring that up before. Now they're, they're confident in like, even, let's say a Jurassic, like, example, like they get their left foot cut off and that's the foot they always jump on, but we've so variation based. They, they're comfortable jumping off the right foot, something like that. Is that how you're approaching mm -hmm. it? Is it just broadening the central nervous system and leveling up the organism in a sense that now when they do go specific, they have more to draw upon? Like what's the thought process there? 
Yeah, I, I'd say that's pretty much spot on. So within, I, I would say like, if we look at a field court sport, that's obviously incredibly chaotic, right? When we're looking at like a high jump approach or long jump approach, whatever, uh, I call that more like subtle chaos, right? Uh, they have to be extremely accurate. Um, but no approach is ever going to be the same. You could be dealing with different fatigue levels, wind, rain, sleet, whatever, uh, arousal level, right? I mean, maybe, you know, at a dual meet on a Tuesday, you know, the, the juices really aren't flowing, but then you're in the state finals, like that's going to be something that's a, that's a completely different situation. So there's that underlying kind of chaos within that. Uh, so you get them to deal with that chaos a little bit better. We do a lot of different things like, um, I call it just steering practice. So we will, instead of saying, all right, like you will mark out an eight step approach and it's going to be consistent. You're going to start from this spot. We'll pick out random spots and say, Hey, you got to figure out a way to get a jump in from this spot, or they'll be required to do some sort of drill heading into the jump. So maybe on, on a high jump, it's like, you're going to take your first three steps, then you're going to skip for a couple, and then you're going to go into, you know, your last three steps and, and get a jump in. Um, I will have high jumpers and long jumpers. We'll do stuff off of both legs uh, for that challenge. So at, at the end of practice uh, or at the end of a session, I might say for high jumpers, okay, now go get three jumps in off your right leg. You don't have to lay out if you don't want to, if you're not comfortable, once you get to that level, awesome. But you know, you're just going to go from a random spot and jump off that leg. Uh, with some other items, like at the end of a high jump practice or long jump practice, we'll even with the long and triple jumpers, we'll, it'll just be freestyle. Like here's the bar, find a way to go over the bar. Like, I don't care. Freestyle. You can go from anywhere. I don't care. Uh, but just something, it's something that one is fun, right? I mean, who doesn't want to jump on the high jump mat, you know, and then us, you, even sprinters will come over at times and just, just want to do that drill because they see everyone having fun. And then two, I think there's just some athleticism, uh, that can be developed within so that's will trans translate beyond the event. I got about that. So I was actually a hammer thrower in college too. So I know what you mean about like the Tuesday meet versus like a big, um, big like conference type meet. And that was something yeah. I, I really wish now that you brought that up, like the different approaches, because in football, all we, you just kind of, like you said, just the sport, even if you're not focusing on it, the sport itself provides so much variation that it's not, you don't have a specific technique. Some coaches try to teach a specific technique, but it's like, you're going to have to adapt. Whereas in throwing, our training was like, do this in this moment with this step at this time. And I always like, now looking back on it, I always felt like I was so trapped into if I miss something at all in that, it was never going to be the perfect throw. And I, I'm trying to expand your jumping thoughts into the throwing world of if you had, and sometimes we threw different implements, but let's say you throw different implements at different spots and different starting positions. One, just building the confidence in the throws to making the throws fun, like you said, and then three, becoming just a more adaptable thrower, somebody, a more adaptable athlete, like you said, just being more confident in what you're doing and not so rigid in like, like you said, like the, it's like a fluid type chaos based sport. And that's all of track and field. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, what one, like a, I think a perfect example of is just watching Patrick Mahomes play quarterback. Mm -hmm. It's just like the most random like, I mean, I wouldn't say it's random because I looking at some of his training, like he's practicing that stuff. Uh, but I mean, it's just like amazing, like the creativity that he has and just the comfort, like I can make a throw from any angle. Like you can tell me it, and he could probably just do that like off the spot. Like, Hey, you're going to throw side arm and you're going to put it through this tire 40 yards down, down you know, the field. And he would do it. <laughs> yeah. And we, we've been working with our, I, I like that you bring that up. Cause we've been working with our QBs in the same exact same exact way. And it's funny because our QB coach, the first time he watched it, it's like, what are, what are you doing to our QB? He's like, why are we throwing off these bad platforms and stuff like that? I'm like, well, like you would cheer if this was Patrick Mahomes. Like you would talk, you would want any, any college team would trade their quarterback in a second for Patrick Mahomes. They would do it. And then they see yep. the different throwing platforms and what they're practicing. And they're like, well, what's happening there? But when you get the, the, the mindset that's flip of, adding that variation, add the, adding the confidence and at least practicing it. Obviously it's not going to be your main throw. It's not going to be main what you do all the time, just like you, like it's not going to be your main jumps are not going to be the random approach. You're going to have your set approach at this set time, but at least you have the option, let's say, or at least they've done something different. So it's not so rigid in what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And I think there's also another benefit is just like the overuse component. Like if I'm going, if I'm dialing in on high jump every time and every attempt is going to be maximal, you're going to fry, fry your nervous system in that pattern. So there just has to be some balance, a, a spectrum of variation there uh, that I think ultimately helps create a more ro robust athlete. 
Well, and that too, I like that you said like fried them out central nervous system wise, but I also think psychologically too, like you want somebody to break a barrier and you just have them like, I just, from my own experience of track and field, like a lot of times it's like running your head into a wall as hard as you can. And then sometimes it opens up and you're like, Oh, finally, like we broke that wall. And once you break that wall, you're good. But if you were to add in a variation to where it's not always running your head into the wall. And a lot of times you're running your head into a wall while you're burning out your central nervous system. So then it's really never going to happen, but you're spicing it up. So it helps psychologically too. And you're allowed to break that barrier in a different sense. And now it's almost like a, cause I know, um, Haller talks about when, when they, they time their sprints, it's like, it's a big deal for them. It's not just something that's random. Like it's a big deal. So now it's time to perform. They can flip that switch. And now it's time to break that PR or is it, I, we could do something like that similar with the jumping approach of, all right, we're doing the variation based and now it's time to turn it on. Now it's time to test. Now it's time to go. Absolutely. Yeah. Another one I was just thinking of with high jump is like, I'll tell the jumper because normally in high jump or, you know, long triple, you, you measure with the tape measure, but like high jump, you know, you can be 17 inches over the bar, right? Uh, you know, like guys will just basically try to jump as high as they can every time, no matter where the bar is. So uh, the challenge for them, it would be, I want you to jump, but I want you to actually raise the bar uh, wherever it is. And, and like literally, so you know, you might be, maybe the kid's yeah. PR is six feet, but you have the bar at five, four. It's like, okay, you need to figure out how you can jump to graze the bar. And and that frustrates them, <laughs> you know, but it just changes, changes that mindset and, and doesn't get them off right out. Cause every kid just wants to jump as high as they can almost all the time. So, or as far as they can all the time. So in like the long and triple, I'll put multiple cones out and, and have them target that. So it's like, okay, you're not just going to max this thing out this time. You're going to try to hit the blue cone. And, but coach, can I know that you need to be able to hit the blue cone, this, this rep, you know, that that's freaking awesome. So, I love that. The, the body control. Cause I'm thinking just applying that with our football athletes, like the body control that's going to require is almost more than the max. Athlete. Like you have the, like you said, do you be able to barely graze that high jump bar when it's not at that exact height? Like that's, that's going to be tough. Something we have done similar with our football guys. We, we, we call them like hula hoop pops. And like you throw, you have two people and one person throws a hula hoop and you have to jump into the other hula hoop and then one person throws. So it's like different variation hops. But I really like that almost like triple jump and long jump approach to because you you have a full type of sprints into it and you almost have to like pace yourself and know what your body is like to be able to hit that mark. I feel like I'm going to have to try that in my next training session because I feel like that's pretty that's more difficult than you're making a sound. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And it's actually fun. like with our guys, we did a, an obstacle course the other day. So they, they came off a serpentine run and then they had to do uh, some, some, there were just some six inch hurdles that they had to kind of within 10 yards decelerate and then uh, get lateral and then do some lateral, like single leg hops over the mini hurdles and watching their body control heading into that. Cause they're trying to go as fast as they can. Cause they're racing. But the deceleration from that serpentine run to those those hurdle hops, you could really see who who had an awareness of what their body was able to do because a lot of them would just blow through those mini hurdles because it's just something that's that's different to them. So that was like one of the things you know we're watching and we had a pretty good idea that was going to happen, uh, but it, it also again told us a lot about each athlete like in terms of like their ability to to kind of gauge where they are are in space and it was also funny just watching them some of the guys just continue to make the same mistake over and over it's like you you blew through the hurdles and like we had to set them all back up like don't you remember setting them all back up like oh yeah it's funny like putting them in those situations just seeing how they react when you were a football coach were you doing this similar stuff or is this pretty recent uh, no. So I was young, uh, when I was a football coach, uh, I think, yeah, my first five years. So we, I, it was pretty traditional for me, uh, as a football coach and like, you know, we'd structure practice, basically how, uh, how I was coached, uh, from, you know, from you through, through college and, and not that there was anything wrong with it, but there, there certainly wasn't, uh, you know, some of the items that we're talking about here that that wasn't present. Uh, and I think it, it would be awesome. Uh, to kind of go back, you know, at some point and, and incorporate some of these ideas um, just to make it more fun and make it uh, something that I think ultimately will help develop athleticism. I, I would love to go back at some point and, and be a low level football coach. I think it'd be great. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of the things that you talk about seeing, it'd be really cool to see that in the football sense. I'm interested now. So I, I sorry, I took you down the whole variation platform. How do you balance? How What is your approach to balancing out not having too much variation and not being too specific. How do you, how do you approach that? Is it an, on an athlete at per athlete basis? Want this athlete's pretty rigid. We're going to do more, more variation with them. This athlete 
has a pretty broad athletic background, but isn't enough specific enough in the high jumping sense. Like how do you, how do you balance that yourself with your team? And yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. We're going to get a wide variety of athletes. Uh, so it's pretty apparent, like with the athlete that comes in that has a, that multi-sport background. Uh, so I love like soccer players and basketball players, football players as jumpers, because they just, they have an awareness of where they are in space because they've had thousands of reps where they're like tracking a ball or avoiding a defender or something like that. So it's pretty obvious when you have those athletes uh, come through your program. And it's like, those are the guys that I'm, I'm like recruiting right away. I'm like, Hey, you should be a jumper. Like, don't worry about hurdles. Like hurdles are cool, but like, you should, you should make sure you're a jumper too. Uh, or, you know, you can hurdle and you can jump. That's um, just a, a conversation that I, ha I have with my head coach all the time that I just try to steal like, about that best athletes. And, you know, um, but the athletes that maybe don't have that experience uh, growing up where they haven't had those thousands of reps. I mean, I could either just claim that they don't have that general athleticism or I can provide them with additional opportunities. So they would probably get more variation. Uh, the, the kind of more all around athlete would probably get more specific uh, within because I also know they're playing another sport most likely. So they're going to get a lot of variation with it within doing the sport. So maybe they would get something that would be more on the specific end. Um, but again, there's still going to be both for each. It, it could just be slightly, uh, again, depending on the athlete needs. needs. I like that. Um, I'm going to transition this now from the jumping world into the sprinting world, because you said a better, you, you make a better sprinter so they can jump higher. Uh, you've also tweeted out that max V is the greatest stimulus you can have on your body. And you talk about how sprinting keeps us young. So obviously you value the importance of sprinting. Why, why is it so important? Why do you think it's so important and how is it kind of misunderstood in the track and field world and in the team sport world? Yeah. So one, I just think sprinting is a, a unique activity where you specifically at maximum velocity, the ground contact times are unique. You, they're, they're not found anywhere else to my knowledge, uh, unless you have like some crazy assisted plyo or something like that. Uh, so ground contact time is, is unique and the force within that ground contact time is, is unique. And then just the overall coordination demand on your body of having muscles and tendons, you know, turn on and off that kind of thing, I think is just, it, it's unmatched in my opinion. Uh, you know, we can look at, you know, people may argue that it's more like squatting a house might be uh, more of a neural uh, stimulus, but you know, for me, the, the coordination piece for that is, isn't there. Um, your feet are always on the ground. So I'm not like saying that that's a bad stimulus or anything like that. I just, for me, sprinting is, is an absolute unique stimulus. And that's really what I view it as is all exercise is just a stimulus. And for me, sprinting is, is one that is just at the top of the food chain. And obviously I have a track coach bias. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware of that. Um, in terms of it just being like, I view it as like the fountain of youth. I feel that if I can do something that resembles a sprint, sorry, <laughs> is it the bell? Yeah. Um, so if I can do something that uh, resembles a sprint, uh, I can probably do, you know, anything land-based. Right. Uh, so I, I think it's just a good, a good marker of where you're at athletically. So that's something that's, that's part of my training uh, in general is being, making sure that I'm able to uh, sprint, you know, whether it, you know, you never know when you're going to run into a lion and you got to sprint away or, you know, that thing. So uh, it's just part of what, you know, what I, what I do when the weather's not terrible. Uh, so usually for me, it's summer and fall. I, I, I get out, go to, go out to a park and I, I do some sprints. And then in the winter for me, it's just developing or, you know, doing exercise that will allow me to sprint back in the, the spring and summer and fall. No, I love that. You, you talked about how you view it. Like you just view exercises as stimulus, which I think is what I've been trying to do a ton, like eliminate all the biases. Uh, you have biases, but try to eliminate as much bias as you can and just view it as a stimulus. And I view sprinting like in a very similar light of that is one of the top stimuluses you can give your body just overall. You're just thinking about overall organism development, uh, leveling up your organism as a, as a person. Like that's a huge stimulus. Then another one I see is like throwing a baseball for throwers, something like that super max velocity with the arm. It's like nothing we can really do in the weight room or in any other aspect can really give us those, that speed of movement, you know, uh, 
we can't really mimic it. And I feel like there, there's a lot of arguing going on about it just because there is biases left and right. And I don't think it has to be either or. I just think if we view it all, like you said, as a stimulus to solve our problem and we microdose that stimulus can be super powerful for athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always I, I say like sprinting is here. And then anything that I do to improve sprinting that's not sprinting is a, a certain amount of generations removed. Right. So I can hop on one foot and I'm going to get forces that are similar, but my contact time isn't going to be, it's going to be way low or way higher. And the coordination to just hop on one foot is going to be lower. So it's, it's, it's going to, it's two generations removed from sprinting and that's fine. Right. Because maybe an athlete needs to be able to deal with forces more and we can't sprint all the time. So that's, that's a good exercise. Right. So yeah, I, I think that's a perfect way to, to phrase things is yeah, to remove those biases. It's all stimulus. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to look at your sport. You're going to determine what you need to be able to do that well. And then you pick out the stimuli that you need to give the athlete. And you said, so I know you're in the Midwest, you're in Chicago, uh, and there's periods of time when you can't run. How do you, like, I want to know what your lifting, your approach to lifting is and your approach to training in the winter months when we have to go through the freaking tundra that is this Midwest area when it gets like minus 30 out and you can't sprint. What's, what's your training look like? during the winter months? Are you doing a lot of lifting? And I guess what's your lifting in general look like with your teams? How do, how do you approach that? How do you add it in? Do you not add it in? What's your approach there? So that's like a, a very loaded question. I would say in general, um, in our season, uh, the early season, we're still indoors. So there will be times where we're in the weight room, uh, you know, usually two days a week. And we, we don't spend too much time in there. Uh, just because of the demands of the sport. Um, so we were able to kind of get what we need in there and get out. Um, so if, but then within that, like in a normal school year, um, I would certainly in the off season be encouraging athletes to get stronger, uh, and, and be in the weight room, uh, whether it's, you know, doing stuff throughout the summer and then in the fall for like our upperclassmen, they have the opportunity to be in, we have a fitness and performance course. So I absolutely want them in that, uh, to develop strength, but in season, it's just, it, it becomes difficult, at least in, in our sport to incorporate and this is just, you know, again, my bias, but it's, it's another variable that we have to balance, uh, within, you know, making sure that we train acceleration, train, train velocity, uh, work tech, technical items with the jumps. So it's, it becomes, uh, an issue, particularly once we get outdoors. So once we hit outdoors, uh, you know, if it's, if we get good weather, like we're going to take advantage of the, the good weather. Um, so I think strength is super important, but to kind of backtrack to like the, the weight room component we're doing things that deal with strength that may not be in the weight room on a daily basis. So out on the track, we have a, a ton of different items uh, that, that we utilize. Um, I'm pretty big into isometrics. Uh, so we we're doing those types of activities, which are pretty baseline uh, activities in general, but uh, they're, they're challenging and our athletes uh, get, get benefit for the, from those for sure. And I, I, I guarantee like we, we may not squat uh, throughout the course of our season, but I bet over the course of the season, uh, our athletes would improve their, their maximum and, and squat. They're going to, they're going to get stronger uh, doing the things that we do that may not be in the weight room. So well, yeah, that, that's one of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is like, what is strength, you know, cause you'll, you'll have a technically strong athlete that shows you lots of numbers in the four, like a huge squats, four or five in that position, strong in that position, sweet, but you put him in a sprinting position and he collapsed, like he's not strong in that position and strong in rotations, whatever you want to call strength. So even though you're not in the weight room, you're using the stimulus as of sprinting to get them stronger, you know, like they're, they're still getting stronger. You're just approaching it in a different stimulus sense. Would you say? Yeah, I, I would say that's accurate. And yeah, this, whether that's sprinting, it's bounding, it's, Yep, depth and drop jumps, all that, all that stuff. Uh, like I said, the isometrics. I mean, they're they're all gonna. And then we're also dealing with teenage boys who are gonna naturally get stronger just because they're breathing. So I, I think there, yeah, there's a ton of ways to improve it. And you know, like I have nothing against any again any any type of stimulus. So I think it's important to move heavy things. I just think you know, in what our purpose is with track and field moving those heavy things would probably be best done in like the, the fall winter kind of months. Um, and then them, and that gets back to like Russian research and stuff like that, where you don't want, uh, like the, from the nervous system component of kind of to deal with, uh, 
you know, the additional muscle, basically like this sounds terrible, but like a bigger muscle, some people would say is like a dumber muscle. (laughs) It's not as coordinated. So if they're, if they're increasing that muscle size substantially during the course of the season, that could potentially impact their ability to to coordinate a long jump. And and I don't want that. So I would rather have them develop that strength or that size if they're going to develop that in our off season. And then when they come into our season, we can focus on dealing with what they have and, and maintaining what they have from that strength standpoint and still, and then develop, focus in on developing that coordination. Boom. I like that. Drawing it back to a little bit of speed. You, I want to talk to you. I want to just hear your approach or how you would approach this of the, the typical game speed versus top end speed, like argument. You, you have the track coaches arguing for, we need to get our football athletes, max velocity exposure. We need to get them faster. And you have the football athletes arguing, so football coaches arguing, uh, it's just another combine warrior. It's just a guy that can run really fast in a straight line, but can't transition that to the field. What is your approach? Why do you think team sport athletes should sprint, like increase that max velocity? And how do you think we need to work on making that combine warrior better at the sport itself, if that makes sense? So I I get it from like a lot of the conversation is that acceleration versus max velocity thing. Uh, So I get a lot of questions out well, you know, basketball or football, like it's, it's just acceleration based. So, so why do we need to sprint at maximum velocity? And, you know, we've talked about it, the idea of it being a stimulus. So another thing that I'll point out to coaches, when we look at like a uh, velocity time graph, uh, it'll be logarithmic. So it'll increase really fast and then start to level off. And usually that leveling off begins with athletes that I deal with around like step 15 to 15 is when the leveling off will begin. Uh, so that'll, that'll put them anywhere between 20 and 30 meters down the track, but that's, that's about when they're going to hit, they're going to hit peak velocity. Probably some of them might already be there, but then it might be, a, you know, a certain amount of steps, depending on how well that they, they continue to accelerate from that point forward. But what's interesting is so at, at step 13, they may be at 90 or 95% of their maximum velocity, but in that window, all right. So as that percentage of maximum velocity goes up, the forces that go into the ground actually increase exponentially. So that's uh, for some research from Nagahara. So that's why maximum velocity matters in, in my mind, like from the science perspective is you are getting an exponent. It's not like a crazy exponential growth rate uh, with, with that force, but you're accessing like this is this should be like the, the strength coach, like holy grail. Like, this is why we need to do maximum velocity sprinting. It's because more force going into the ground, it's increasing at that exponential rate. So if you only train acceleration, you're missing out on force. Like that's that's what's being left on the table. So that would be my uh like closer, my clincher on like why maximum velocity matters. Like it's it's more force. And everyone loves more force, right? <laughs> so that's uh, one standpoint. And then the, the other part of that question, I've had you know a ton of athletes that you know you, you watch them sprint. You're like, that, we got to get that guy in the field. Then you put him on the field, and they can't catch a ball. It's like, okay, well now what? You know. Um, so there's that. I think it's Fergus Connolly with the the four coactive model with the the technical, the tactical, uh, psychological, and uh, it's another peak physical, right? So they have physical down. Right. They're able to move really fast. But, you know, what can we do? What's holding them back from being able to display that physical on the field? Um, is it because they're just is it, they're new to football and they're scared of getting their head taken off? That's that's a psychological issue. You're going to have to address that if you want them to make an impact on the field. Uh, are they new to the sport and they're just not very good at the technique? Right. They don't have the awareness. They don't have the experience within the sport to get better. All right. Or is there just something technical that they missed along the way? right? That they were never taught that that could kind of close that gap. Or is it just the tactical item of not, not really understanding the game and where they're at in space. Uh, so those would be some, some things, uh, also just vision, I think is huge. Uh, probably I, I've heard, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Fichter, but, uh, he is, uh, he's at the a regular at the track football consortium uh, conferences. I've seen him speak numerous times and numerous times that he constantly says every presentation, he's like, the most undertrained part of the body is the eyes. Like he always says that. So something within the training, like our, our training, even as jumpers, like we're going to incorporate the eyes because that's, that's, that's interpreting where we're at. So 
I think those are all different items that you kind of have to look at uh, from on an individual uh, standpoint and just say, you know, where, where are the gaps with this athlete? And instead of just like a lot of coaches would just say, well, you know, that, that kid's track, he just has track speed. It's like, okay, well coach them. So they have, they can use that track speed on the field. Don't just like be like, Oh, I can't deal with that. He should just continue to run track. Excuse me, but bullshit, like coach the kid, you know? Yes. That that's a great ending. I, I like that. <laughs> that. That's a, I mean, and you have the other end of it too, is like the, they're all right with a slow athlete, just sending them to track to get them faster. And the track coach would never say, this guy's just slow. I'm not going to do it, but they'll do it. They'll do it on the other end. So yeah, I totally agree with yeah. that. Uh, before we get to rapid fire rounds, I kind of want to step out of the, so much of the high jumping and sprinting world and go into a little bit of Jeremy Frisch's world, but that you're climbing. Like uh, one of the coolest things I saw on your Twitter was you built up this rock climbing thing, which is I, I've been geeking out about rock climbing. Uh, Austin Einhorn got me super into it. Um, can you talk about one, why, why you built it out? Was it just personal or are you having athletes do it? And then two, what are some of the benefits that you've seen from doing it or you are looking forward to? I don't know how long you've had it, but the, your rock climbing approach. Yeah, so that, uh, I think I've had it up for about three weeks. and. If you notice, it's in my basement. So I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and I'm six, six. So the wall itself, like I I can just, I can kind of go across it squatting. Um, So I put it up for, for my kids and uh, it's always like we do obstacle courses pretty regularly. So they're, they're, the four-year-old does pretty well on it. Uh, The six, my daughter, she, she doesn't, she's not like super athletic. So she struggles with it a bit, but I kind of knew that going in that it would be something that like, it's just going to be a challenge for them. So right, you know, right now it's, it's difficult, but it's going to be fun just going through that process of, uh, you know, watching them develop that skill. I have monkey bars. We have like a, a bar to go across, you know, we've got all kinds of stuff. So, uh, you know, just constantly like having options for them to go downstairs in the basement and, and just work off some energy and work through different, uh, problem solve or different, uh, problems to solve. Uh, what my wife doesn't know is that in my garage where I, I tend to train, the ceiling is higher and <laughs> I will be putting one up there for myself. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't know that yet. Um, but yeah, there's a wall that I kind of have your mark that I think, uh, I'll be putting one up. Yeah. I just think just climbing, hanging, that kind of thing is, is very overlooked. And, uh, I, I look forward to uh, getting the climbing wall of my garage and throwing up some, some more monkey bars up there. I have a big bar to hang from uh, that stuff to me is just fun and it's, it's functional. Well, I loved you. You talked about the, the problem solving piece of it. So we've been doing with our football guys. It's, it's pretty funny. We have a hundred football guys going to the weight room uh, and we share the weight room with general population. Um, and I have them do rack climbs. So like they're, they're, they're treating the rack as their, their monkey bar. So they'll climb all the way around the rack and like all the way through, they get themselves hoisted up on there. Um, and you have like 300 pound dudes just sitting on top of the racks, like climbing around. It's hilarious. But the problem solving aspect of it is you'll see them get to a spot and get stuck and like you see it processing. I think it's one of the coolest things I've seen live of you see them processing where they have to put their hand next where they have to put their foot next. They're all different. They all have different climbing abilities. So it's never the same. It's not, you can't just watch one person go through and then do the same thing because you don't have the same climbing abilities. You have different levers and you just see them think, oh, okay, where do I put this hand? Where do I put this hand? How do I do this? And you get all of that with the hanging benefits, with the the grip and the forearm and a lot of the core aspects of it. And they get done with it and they love it rather than if you told them to do pull-ups. Uh, I get a lot of dirty looks from the big guys if I tell them to do pull-ups. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I love that. That's I've seen some of those videos and they're 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 incredible. Uh, that's something that uh, I wish like I had a rack like a rack system like that where I where I could go and just mess around like that. Um, on a, like a lower level of that, in one of our warm ups, what we'll do is have instead of being in lines, you know, it's just we'll have, we'll have some we'll have a space and we'll just tell athletes to skip for a minute. So just skip, go forwards, go backwards, go go inside follow curve path, but everyone in the program is doing it. So they have to have awareness of where everybody else is at. Right. So they're, they're making those decisions. All right. They're interpreting space as opposed to just going through and doing skips in a straight line. Like that's boring. You know, so <laughs> yeah. things up with that, you know, and then they'll go into gallops and then, you know, we'll do a lot of different things. We'll, uh, but they just have to have awareness of their surrounding, which again, you don't really have to have often in track and field. So I think it's a, uh, 
a, a win-win uh, from that standpoint. Awesome. Before I uh, before we finish up this podcast and go into rapid fire rounds, I saw that you posted. This is 100% selfishly because I'm a huge sauna person. I saw you post something about a sauna blanket. Can you talk to me a little bit about the sauna blanket, the benefits that you've seen, if it's uh, if it's worth the purchase and what it's kind of like? I've never even heard of a sauna blanket until you brought it up or until you tweeted about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been like in the, the rabbit hole of the sauna and trying to figure out like if I was going to invest in getting a sauna in my house. Right. So I have like my wife always says she has expensive taste and purses like in, in, in terms of jewelry and mine is just in terms of exercise equipment. So, um, so, you know, like a sauna in my house would probably cost anywhere between 3000 and $5,000. So, um, you know, I, I had a chunk of money set aside where I was like, I'm going to do this. Like I'm, I'm, I'm getting a sauna, you know, I was going to, I was going to do a dry heat one and, uh, get it down in my basement. But then I was like, you know what I can, you know, space is valuable. I want that space to be primarily for my kids at this point. So, uh, I, I went against that and I got introduced to the idea of a sauna blanket and, um, they're infrared. So that's, you know, personally, like I heard some, I, I know that there's, there's good things about the infrared, uh, some positives as opposed to just the traditional dry sauna. Uh, but, um, that wasn't the route I wanted to go, but then, you know, I started, there's just not as much research out with the infrared from, from what I, from what I've gathered. So, uh, I figured, you know what, it's the, the one that I bought, I think a deal on it, uh, it was like a black Friday deal. So it was $350 and I was like, I can, I can do that. I can make that work. No problem. Uh, so I found one, I, I did a lot of digging on that. And part of the issue for me is I am six, six. So I need to be able to fit in the sauna blanket. And then the other part was, uh, getting the temperature that I want. So I don't know if you follow, uh, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, but, uh, she, she's like, uh, well, she's a phenomenal health professional in general, but she does deep dives has done deep dives on saunas. And one of the things that she said is you want it to be at least 180 degrees for 20 minutes. Like that's, you're going to get the, the different markers that you need for that. That's what she does. So I was like, okay, I need one that's going to go up to 180 degrees, or I think it's like 82 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, so that kind of narrowed down the field uh, pretty much. And the one that meets that criteria, the only one that I found is called a gizmo uh, sauna blanket. I think it goes up to 90 degrees Celsius and it fit like it literally uh, is like, I just fit in it. So um, that's, that's what I've been using. And it's, I, I do two to three times a week. I love it. It, it, you know, I did one yesterday, like by the end of the day, I'm just like done, you know, it's, it's in a quality of sleep that I get is, is improved with it. Uh, and I, when I go in there, I, like instantly, like, it's just like nap city, you know, like I'm, I'm out like, uh, and before it wasn't like that, uh, it took a little while to get comfortable, but now it's just like, I, I crank it up and then I go and it's, it's very uh, restorative, meditative. I usually don't listen to anything. I just kind of focus on breathing and then I pass out. And then there's an alarm to make sure that I wake up. <laughs> you don't fall asleep during the entire time. Yeah. yeah. I love that. All right. You might've sold me on a sauna blanket. I've been trying to, I've been in the same situation looking to get a sauna uh, and then trying to find the space with the sauna. And I'm like, damn. Yeah, that's a cool thing. Like it, you just, uh, you know, you spray it down when you're done, you fold it up and I mean, it, it fits in a box. Uh, so the only challenge that I've had with it is keeping it away from my puppy. If she wants to chew on it, <laughs> chew it up. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, let's tra ra transition to rapid fire round. That was a very selfish question, but I'm glad I asked because now I kind of really want to get one. <laughs> first, first question of the rapid fire rounds is favorite book or books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of. Okay. Uh, I'll go uh, three different styles. So one, I love Harry Potter. If you haven't read Harry Potter, like they're just fantastic. Books. I was a midnight release guy for the seventh book. So I, I'm deep into that. Okay. Rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I was actually for the seventh one. Um, I was in Greece at the time and it was like with, I was like kind of chaperoning a, a soccer trip for the high school. So like all, all the, the soccer players, they knew that I loved Harry Potter and they, they bought me when it came out. Uh, they bought me a copy and it's like the, they, the English version. So, you know, it, it says like, instead of elevator, it says like lift and things like that. So it's pretty cool. Uh, so I, I have that. It's, it's, it was awesome. But yeah, I, the fifth one, I actually read in one sitting. Damn. I okay. got it. I got it. And I read the whole thing. It was, it was definitely pre kids and everything. Cause I don't have that kind of time now, but it, it took like 19 hours or something. 
but yeah, I was just, I read it straight. So yeah, Harry Potter for sure. Um, I really like the book Quiet uh, by Susan Cain. It's uh, about the power of introverts. I'm, I'm an introvert. Uh, I thought there was something wrong with me for like the longest uh, in that like I would get uncomfortable at like social gatherings and be exhausted like afterwards. Whereas like, you know, I had friends who just wanted to be at social gatherings every day. And I was just like, dude, I, I just need to sit on the couch today, man. <laughs> like I'm done. So that, that was something that was eye-opening and, and very helpful for me from a mental health standpoint. Um, and then, oh, what is another one? Um, I think the book most likely to succeed. Uh, I forget who wrote that. There's two guys, uh, I think from Harvard that wrote that, but uh, it's fantastic. It's the best education book I've ever read. Uh, and I would encourage anyone who is going to have that deals with within teaching and coaching, you should read it. If you're going to have kids at some point, you should read it. Uh, but it kind of uh, lays out uh, the groundwork necessary to prepare uh, students, athletes, kids for the future. Boom. Those three good ones. I like it. Next one. Who's a guest that you think we should have on this podcast that listeners can get, get a lot out of? Uh, Dr. Ron Patrick would be awesome. I, I would totally I'd love to hear her. Uh, so she would be great. Uh, she's, I think, based out of San Diego. Uh, so she'd be cool. Uh, and then uh, I co-owner of a, like a track resource uh uh, site website. Uh, so my partner in that is Tyler Rathke. Uh, he's a, a, a head track coach, uh, throws coach primarily uh, in Missouri. Uh, and he he's super knowledgeable, uh, coaches basketball as well. Uh, just wealth of, wealth of knowledge. So yeah, he, he would be cool too. Oh, we can geek out about throwing together. <laughs> Next yeah, question. For sure. Last one of the podcast. We've almost made it all the way through. You've almost done it. All right. <laughs> When all the coaching is over and all the teaching is over, what do you want your legacy to be? I would say that I want people to be able to, like when, when they interact with my kids, uh, I want them to say that, uh, that they loved, they love, you know, and that's it. Like they, you know, they, they enjoyed being around me that, that I show them, you know, that they, they had value. So uh, I guess that's, that's kind of been on my mind uh, quite a bit uh, lately. It's just, you know, what, what are people going to tell my kids about me when I'm gone? You know, I don't know why that's been on my mind a lot lately, but uh, that's, you know, something, I guess something that I just think about, like, what, what are you going to leave behind? And I mean, the most valuable thing I'm going to leave behind is my kids, but you know, what are people, what are people going to tell my kids about me? And I, I, I hope that it's positive stuff. <laughs> I love that. Well, Coach, you survived the podcast. Thank you for being on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you guys for listening. Keep chopping wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.